Hello and welcome to another edition of Greening the News, the podcast for IEMA professionals, the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. We're the professional body for anyone involved in sustainability and the environment. And it may not seem like it, but COP, the Conference of Parties for Climate Change, the UN Climate Change Talks, is just around the corner in a few weeks' time in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. And this year, of course, therefore, it is an Africa COP. And we've had so much in the news over the last year about not only the strategic importance of Africa, but the fact that so many communities across the continent have been affected uh, immensely by climate change. So it's a great opportunity to talk to one of our fantastic members, a member of the IEMA West Africa Steering Group, uh, Thomas Kankang Ajie. Uh, Thomas is a climate and energy policy analyst, and he works at the highest levels in government within Ghana and uh, across Africa as well. Thomas, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I wondered if I could maybe start off with a bit of a cop question and then then go into your own experience, your professional experience. So what do you want from COP? Thank you very much, um, Sarah and the team for putting me on. I mean, to answer your question and not to beat about the bush, I would just say implementation. Implementation, 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 because the rhetoric about climate change, climate finance, and why it is important that we all come together to you know, address this global challenge cannot be overstated. And over the years, we have, this is the 27th COP, we've made some progress, but then more and more needs to be done. So for me, it's one word, implementation. That's what I'm looking forward to. Uh, we'll, we'll hold that thought because we'll come back to that a little bit later on. But I'm really keen to understand how you started your own professional journey. What was it that really inspired you to get into sustainability? That's that's a good question. I, it started off with my first experience with the whole climate change experience was at the when Ghana hosted the Cartagena Dialogue. Yes, that was yes. my introduction to the whole climate change discourse and policy and you know the global effort to address climate change. And I was just enthused about how people were so passionate about the climate and about it was over three days they came to Ghana to talk about how there can be a global response to climate change, especially to uh, adaptation. And that was when it was around that time that the whole discussion on the GCF, setting up the, the Green Climate Fund was coming up. They have global commitments to from developed countries to put $100 billion every year. So that was when those discussions were being, was really at the forefront. So that, that was what really um, energized my interest, if I could say so. It's really interesting you say that because I think a lot of people think these big international events, you know, what do they actually bring to the communities where they are? And that was really one of the reasons that they started the Green Zones, the UNFCCC, because all these international people were kind of dump themselves into a city and then just sit there and talk to each other and then fly off. But from your point of view, it did actually make a difference. It raised your awareness. It, it So much so. Yeah, it did. It did because the whole idea of people from different um, national circumstances coming together to couch a global solution to me was very interesting and, and very inspiring. And, you know, as a young person at the time, 
inspired me to want to be part of that, you know, good people who are trying to solve global yeah. problems. So, yeah, I, I mean, it goes a long way to inspire some of us and to also to, because we are here to serve basically as human beings. I mean, not just to live for ourselves. We have to live for the bigger community and the greater good. And to me, that selflessness and that effort, that drive, the, the passion with which these people were talking and, you know, sharing ideas to me was great. And I wanted to be part of that. And have you seen in the time, I mean, now, as we said, you're working at the highest levels, you're working in government and internationally. I mean, from your own experience, I mean, I know, for example, at the moment in the UK, we're having average temperatures of 22 degrees Celsius, which is unheard of in the autumn and the autumn is cold. It's 14, 15 degrees. Are you finding the same things in in Ghana? I mean, what sort of experiences are you having in terms of climate change? And, and how the climate is changing for you. Yes. So, I mean, Ghana is, is part of the global community and we are also having our own fair share of happening in the world. And in Ghana, I mean, we are, actually, I would say we are used to the heat. I mean, this is um, tropical Africa, so it's we are, we, are, we are going through that. But then it's on the ascendancy now because temperatures are also now even more because normally you have 22 degrees, something like that on a normal day, but now it could go as high as 35, as 32, as 28. I mean, those are the kinds of temperatures we are experiencing here. And it's, and it's even more pronounced in the northern part of Ghana, where it's where it is right, it's a savanna zone. Yeah. And these are where the, the very vulnerable people are. These are where their smallholder farmers are. I mean, has been very devastating. And even those of us in the southern part where uh, you know, seems to be a little bit developed compared to the north. Mm. Here too, there there are issues of floods. Now we are the both extremes of the weather. It's either too hot or too wet, and then Fine. it also affects public infrastructure because then you have to spend more money to you know reinforce um, the drainage system and all of these other things. So yeah, it's, it's it's something all of us are getting our fair share of. So and 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 yeah, so yeah. It's, it's something that also requires a global effort, as as you said. Well, absolutely. And that's interesting about rain. I and mean, we've had a, a daily to biblical levels of rain uh, today here uh, in the UK. And I was thinking just exactly the same thing. We, we have to think completely differently about our engineering, don't we? That things that were fit for purpose even five years ago may not be in five or ten years. Wherever you are in the world, we, we obviously know that uh, developing communities have uh, are more fragile to climate change, but it's not. It's everybody who's going to be affected. Yep, certainly, certainly. I mean, it, climate does not know rich or poor, developed or underdeveloped. So, and that is why it is important that we all come together as um, as a global community to try to address this solution. Like I painted the picture in Ghana, the northern part is not so developed, the southern is developed, but then we are all having our own fair share of climate change in different ways. So no matter how you look at it, we all have to come together and address climate change as one um, global community with one common understanding of what, and also accepting that climate change actually exists and that we have to fight it exactly. Now, Thomas, you're, as we said, you're um, a, a policy analyst and you develop um, for governments, uh, you're both within in Ghana and across uh, internationally as well. What's in your inbox at the moment and what are the things that are, are really uh, you're having to get your teeth into in terms of your, your own personal and professional journey? Yes, so thank you very much for that question. So currently I'm working on um, 
the NDCs under the Paris Climate Agreement. So under that, and you know, COP is coming. So COP is like topical everywhere. I'm, I'm in meetings every day, planning side events at the COP. So that is what is really topical on my agenda right now, see, to move the discussion on e-mobility especially forward. So that, I mean, Ghana, we are, I'm working with the government of Ghana through the Ministry of Transport to try to implement an e-bus system in the city of Accra to encourage private sector participation in the whole agenda of um, climate finance, because climate change is a problem, but it also pre presents an opportunity for private sector to also come on board to support the government to realize its dreams and also to reduce the country's carbon emissions and also the health impact, because air quality is also a problem because of the high emissions from these old rickety vehicles we have on, in our, on our roads in Accra. So if you're able to transition to these electric buses, that will also be a very good uh, thing for us because then we are also able to save on also the, the, the use of fossil fuel in this case to help the country also, you know, join the global train of trying to save the climate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, I mean, of course, we might think being Africa, being, as you said, a tropical part of the, the world that you might think immediately of solar. But is it just solar or are you looking at other renewables for those sort of projects? For well, now, solar is the main thing, because as you said, we have more of the sun here. So solar is the main thing we are trying to push so that uh, it becomes, if not the dominance, one of the major players in our energy mix. So the, the country has a vision of achieving about 10% of the energy mix of it, with renewable energy by 2030. And this is something we are all, all working towards. And this is also one of the opportunities that will help the country get there because if more electric vehicles are on the road, that means there will be a requirement for more renewable energy. And that's opportunity for private sector. And that will also be a win-win for the government and also even and largely for the climate as a whole. Yeah, so that is what we are trying to push. Um, you mentioned the farmers in the north of the country, and uh, I think we, when we, because I should say that we, we met in a in a rather strange uh, cafe in a church. <laughs> I think we we both we both kind of walked around it thinking this can't be right last year at Glasgow, and we did mention at the time that there wasn't a food day a day um, especially for agriculture and food, which of course there there will be this year. Do you think that you know the food supply and food supply chains are being affected by for the communities that you're working with uh, by climate change as well? Yes, yeah, certainly so. Certainly so, because now um, farmers will have to depend more on irrigation systems, for example, as a um, as an adaptation adaptation mechanism or a coping mechanism against climate change, because the rains will not becoming as usual and when they come mm -hmm. they come in overabundance so then there should be a mechanism or a system where we're able to store some of that rain and so that it doesn't rather cause havoc and de uh, devastation to the farmers so mm -hmm. irrigation is something we are also pushing under our collaboration with the government of ghana and in this case because formerly irrigation the the former irrigation systems we have in ghana use diesel or fossil fuel to power the generators but now you are trying to replace them with solar powered irrigation systems so that this is so even in the irrigation is also green so that uh, we are using the sun to generate the energy to power these irrigation facilities so those are some of the solutions we are looking at at the moment and what are the big barriers that you're facing at the moment hmm that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, not that I wish to be, uh, you know, yeah. to, 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 yeah. to be the pessimist here. but <laughs> yeah. 
Well, as much as we are all calling for collaboration and all togetherness and all of that, one thing I've also come, I've come to realize is there's there there's always vested interest, even in government. Working in Ministry of Transport may have a certain vision about something. Ministry of Energy will have a, a totally different vision about something. So the challenge here is always trying to build that consensus that look, we, we all stand to benefit if this thing goes well. And understanding that you have a common but differentiated interest. So the ability to communicate that well and, and to get everybody on board to play their role effectively to achieve that sustainable uh, resource we are looking for is always the challenge. Trying to bring people on board to build that consensus to achieve uh, a common goal is, is always a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think actually that's a, a brilliant opportunity to bring in our digital journalist, Tom Pashby, while we're talking about uh, the challenge of governance. Uh, Tom, I don't think we can really have a conversation, can we, without what's going on? As we, just before we we started our conversation with Thomas, the British government uh, has, well, the administration has essentially fallen. The prime minister has resigned, but interestingly. One of the reasons for that resignation was had a, an environmental base to it, didn't it? And, and that was the, the fracking vote uh, last night. I wonder if you could uh, fill us in a little bit more. Yeah. So there was a vote about fracking in the House of Commons yesterday. And it's slightly complicated because the vote itself wasn't necessarily about fracking. It was about allowing a vote on fracking because there's in our complicated parliamentary system, it was an opposition day debate. and the Labour Party wanted to have a vote on banning fracking and that would have meant that the government lost control of the House of Commons. So the government wanted to vote against the motion and they ended up creating a lot of confusion about whether it was a confidence vote in the government itself. So the government tried to say that it wasn't about fracking, it was about confidence in the government and there was lots of chaos in Parliament last night but about fracking itself, which is a very important issue, which there was a lot of substan substantive debate about from backbenchers. Basically, the, the context of this is that the new now gone Prime Minister, Liz Truss, decided to end the moratorium on fracking, which was going against her own Conservative manifesto, which was put to voters in 2019. Lots of Labour members, Labour frontbench and backbench Conservative MPs were against overturning the ban. And yeah, it, the vote fell anyway, but there was lots of confusion last night. It's not a good look for those of us interested um, and supporting an environmental outcome or a net zero outcome, is it really? Well, I suppose it's all really irrelevant now because we're probably going to get another prime minister. But it, it kind of goes mm. to the heart of this confusion about where we're heading in terms of net zero. Yeah, it it, it does create a lot of confusion. There is ongoing confusion about the direction of government as it stands. Liz Truss in her resignation speech said that she still expects the midterm fiscal plan or whatever it's called um, to go ahead next week, which may include uh, assumptions about fracking coming back. Um, in, in terms of the environmental side, the, the reasons for proposing to overturn the ban were to increase domestic energy supply. However, as has been widely acknowledged, the gas that is extracted, the oil and gas that is extracted from fracking would enter the international market. So it wouldn't automatically go into UK households and it wouldn't necessarily have that much of an impact on UK energy prices. So very controversial issue. And uh, what else have you been looking at for us, Tom? The next 
biggest story that I thought we should talk about was about blackouts, because the national grid has been warning that the UK may face blackouts of around three hours, others saying days uh, in the depths of winter this year on cold nights. And that is partly because of very high energy prices um, as a result of Putin's war in uh, Ukraine, where he's been using supply of gas as a weapon of war. Um, so it's a combination of high gas prices and the potential for Russia just to stop supplying gas to continental Europe, where we get a lot of our gas and electricity from via interconnectors. So that could result in what National Grid is describing as potential three-hour blackouts. And also there was a Guardian story this week about the BBC preparing fresh scripts for newsreaders to reassure the public in the event of power cuts. However, BBC said that this is something that they do regularly um, because they have responsibility as, a, as the public broadcaster to reassure the public. Yeah, I do. I have to say that is true because having been, you know, have worked at the BBC in the past, it, there is. It's rather like you know when an important figure dies, you know, there are there's pre-put together stuff just in case mm. these things happen. I mean, Thomas, uh, we talked a little bit earlier, and you said you'd seen it on the news that the, the British Prime Minister had resigned, um, and now we're getting uh, blackouts as well and, and uh, power shortages. I mean, maybe do you think there's things that we could perhaps begin to hear from communities across the world in the global and developing south about how to be a bit more resilient, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, that's news. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not into British politics, but I think it's a little bit unfortunate. I don't think anybody uh, is, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit unfortunate that, um, I mean, within a matter of about a month or so, I mean, the whole government seems to be crumbling. It's, it's quite unfortunate because Coming from Ghana, we see Britain as some form of a standard bearer in terms of governance and, you know, in all of these things. So it was unfortunate that that government was going to, you know, go ahead with issues like fracking and all of that. Mm -hmm. So it, it was quite unfortunate. But we, we, we are just what I would say is maybe we hope that whoever comes next will come to, you know, bring hope to the rest of the world because the Britain or UK has a place in global politics and I think they shouldn't let all of us down and they should take their rightful position and take that leadership and show they will. Thanks. Thanks, Thomas. And Tom, those are really that's a really kind of salutary comment, isn't it, from from Thomas, that really we should start as a nation beginning to look to our global responsibilities and, and some global leadership. Uh, do we have any sense of where the UK government is in front in, in terms of COP27? Well, it's, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Because Alok Sharma, as current president of COP26, which is the relates to the conference that was held last year in Glasgow, has actually spoken very well about the UK's position on climate leadership internationally, which is, you know, the climate emergency is an international issue. It's not one that is just confined to UK politics. It would be much better if UK domestic politics was, you know, more suitable for better climate leadership. Um, but yeah, as I said, Alex Sharma is the current president of COP26. He's recently spoken at IMA's Connect conference, where he talked about the climate emergency in terms of the existential threat it presents and how we need to close the gap between ambition and action on the ground. The, I think the main thing that the international climate community is talking about at the moment, as it has been for the past 12 months or more, is about keeping 
the goal of 1.5 degrees of global heating alive, because as things stand, nationally determined contributions breach uh, two degrees, I believe, of warming. And yeah, uh, as has been said, with the the UK is distracted by Westminster turmoil, and it would be it would be great if that could calm down a bit, and if we could move forward and think about COP27 which is going to be in Egypt this year. Tom, thanks very much. I I know you'll be there, I'll be there. And in fact, Thomas will be there as well. So maybe we should uh, meet up for a coffee and have a a chat. But for for the time being, Tom, thanks very much. Uh, Thomas, just before we we finish the conversation, you'll be there obviously as well. As you said, you're putting a... You're putting a program of events together. Um, we've been one thing we haven't talked about is national determined contributions. There's kind of carbon budget for each country that it brings to the international conference to have a have a conversation about. Are there any particular areas where Ghana's working on their NDCs, as it's called? Yes, yes, yes. Ghana, Ghana has been an active player. In, in that area in terms and it's actually one of the very first countries to ratify its NDCs and we are looking uh, from the government of Ghana perspective to achieve that through with about four main um, priority areas energy agriculture waste management and land use those are the very four areas Ghana is focusing on and if you look at our emissions profile those are also the areas where our emissions are the highest. So Ghana is trying to really push, as I said, renewable energy. We are looking at increasing it to about 10% of the energy mix by 2030. Um, government is also working on climate smart agriculture, trying to you know, introduce solar power to the, to the farmers, improve seeds and all of these other things to make sure that agriculture is more sustainable and not just at the mercy of the weather. And also waste management, there have been some efforts to also try to you know, um, not just uh, segregate waste and also turn some of the waste into compost and all of this and that whole forward and backward linkage with waste management. So th- those these are things government is working on and I believe with the international support it, that it requires, hopefully at this COP27, it will not just be talk, but then the, the, the developed world will actually devote the money that um, developing countries need to implement these measures. Yes. Yes, it's. I mean, as someone who was inspired by a, an international conference as you were, do you get frustrated by the pace of change? I mean, not always. I mean, always it's never enough. Uh, COP26, I think, was probably more forward thinking than we thought when it ended. But even so, it's quite glacially slow, isn't it? Yeah. These these international processes can be a little bit, you know, slow. They they grind slow. I mean, because you have to deal with a lot of people and perspectives, and and even the politics behind it, all of that also kind of, you know, uh, slows down the process. But I I think this for me this COP will be a make or break for the whole UNFCCC COP system. Really? If this one wow. becomes another rhetoric, another talk shop going forward, I don't think people will take this process seriously anymore. Yeah. Because then you always meet and then make promises to ourselves we are never ready to keep. And I, I don't think that is the way the global effort should go. We should put more seriousness to this um, vehicle and also implement the things we say we will do. So as I said in the beginning, to me it's about implementation and it's about you know making sure that we, we say things we can do and we do things we say. That's really interesting and quite understandable, to be perfectly honest, because as you said, there's only so many times you can keep turning up to these things and 
talk about the same things and then go off and and often do something on your own because you're waiting for the international community to support. We always ask our guests one final question. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? And uh, I'd be interested to see what you see, what you say. I'm definitely an optimist. I'm definitely an optimist because the last thing uh, a person, the worst thing a person can do to themselves is to give up. So um, I always have hope. I always look forward to the brighter side. So I'm, I'm certainly an optimist. Thomas, thank you so much, as always, for a fascinating conversation and a real, uh, a really inspirational chat about your work in Ghana. Uh, and don't forget, wherever you're listening, however you're listening on Google Play, Spotify or iTunes, uh, you can listen to more interviews and discussions with IEMA members um, on all sorts of things from sustainable sport to nuclear power. Uh, and to contact us, follow us on Twitter at IEMANET and send us a DM or email us at podcasts at aima.net. Do let us know what you'd like to hear more of. Uh, we're getting through all the suggestions that you've uh, given to us uh, one by one. So look forward to hearing some more really interesting subjects like this one in the months to come. 